six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. Prepare yourself for a world of science. This is... What is going on, everybody? Conley here with the Science Nights, 10 a.m. on Saturday. And, hey, brand new show here for you. And we are excited to have Dr. Thomas Schiller and Dr. Sean Graham all the way from Australia down under what's going on not much everything's good here it's it's warm it's summertime people are at the park people are hugging and kissing and going to weddings and shaking hands and not wearing masks it's wonderful here it's uh it's really cool all right cool are there uh, executions in the street <laughs> there are no executions see you guys are the ones over there living in fear i don't want to hear about it you're the ones barricaded into your house this place has got it going on uh that all the all the threat is up front you know like don't come here or it's your butt but when you're here everything's safe it's it's terrific well that's um, cool the, I, the economy I do. is humming along it's 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 they're really taking care of business here I do hear stories about uh, dogmen tapping on people's uh, car windows, but I think those are kangaroos. Like, oh, yes, get yes. you do have to watch out for all the vicious kangaroos, but um, the, the threat is overstated. They're, <laughs> they're quite nice animals. Sweet, sweet. All right. Well, today I want you and uh, Dr. Thomas Schiller to talk about intrusion. Because we yeah. worry about intrusion here. That's why we have guns. Let me let me just intrude there what? real quick. <laughs> oh. okay. So if we're, we're talking about intrusions, but um, maybe mm. not necessarily the type of intrusion that you're thinking of there, Conley. We're talking we're talking igneous intrusions. Oh wait, yeah, not when your in laws. So show do I re reload or unload or what? <laughs> Yeah, I, I these intrusions, Conley. There's nothing you can do about these intrusions. No, if they decide to intrude, no handgun in the world will protect you. <laughs> okay, well, I'm interested. The listeners are interested. Let's talk about intrusions. All right. Well, I guess I'll get things rolling since I'm the designated geologist here. But um, what we're talking about are igneous intrusions. So um, we're talking about rocks that form from older molten rocks. Um, now, when people think about that sort of thing, they usually think about what goes on on the surface, uh, volcanoes or volcanism. Um, volcanoes and, and volcanic rocks specifically form from extrusive material, um, like lava, that cools down and forms solid rock. But what you don't see is what's going on miles and miles and miles beneath the surface of the Earth, where that molten rock has to be sourced from somewhere. All the stuff that gets to the surface has to come from somewhere. So in addition to having all of these volcanoes um, at the surface of the Earth, we've got big bodies, in some cases small bodies, of molten rock beneath the surface called magma. And um, since the beginning of geologic time, basically, um, that magma has been working its way up and down through the mantle and the crust of the Earth, 
and uh, sometimes it forces its way into older rocks near the surface. It's eroded down over time, and we can actually observe it as solid uh, uh, igneous rock you know, at the surface today. So uh, the term intrusion, at least in geology, kind of encompasses a wide range of, of geologic features. Um, now, keep in mind as we're talking about these these features, these are these are um, things that take place over, in some cases, millions of years worth of time, and again, you know, sometimes miles beneath the surface of the Earth. So we can't necessarily see this stuff happen, but um, chemistry and physics um, and modern methods in geology kind of allow us to understand how it happens. Um, so should I go into the different... And these, these make some really phenomenal landforms when they do eventually erode out. Yeah. People, people who are listening right now still wondering what the hell you're talking about. They've seen these. Uh, some of these are some of our most famous and iconic American landforms. So maybe we should jump, jump ahead here and go ahead and name and discuss how some of the most phenomenal intrusions formed and where they are. Sure. Starting, I guess, with West Texas, because we yeah. have plenty of them around here. Yeah, we have we have some spectacular examples of intrusions out here in West Texas. Um, nearby Alpine, we've got Mitre Peak, which is a really distinctive geologic feature. It's an Beautiful. intrusive body of rock. Um, the, the term mitre, if you're not familiar with what it means, M-I-T-R-E, refers to the, the hat of a bishop okay, because of the distinctive pointed shape. Uh, but that body of rock started out, you know, thousands of feet beneath the surface as a big molten body of rock and cooled. And over time, it was exposed and um, erosion and weathering kind of sculpted it into that miter shape that we see today. Yeah, a lot of times these, since they're made of completely different rock from the stuff that they intruded into, they end up forming really distinctive um, erosion-resistant features, like like the mitre peak, like mm -hmm. the bishop's cap. And I think even more famous, probably, to people who come to West Texas, are the mule ears. Right? Yep. Are, am I right about that? Are they? Um, is that another intrusion? Yep. Yep. Those are some some smaller, more tabular intrusions. So when we, when we classify intrusive bodies of rock, we kind of classify them based on their size, uh, their shape, and how they uh, relate to the surrounding rock. So um, we have tabular intrusions, which are kind of shaped like a, like a table surface. They're blocky and flat, and they can either cut across the surrounding older rock or they can uh, kind of follow the layers of the rock. When it comes to mule ears, um, those are tabular intrusions that cut across the the older rock. So when they when they eroded down, rather than forming kind of a flat feature, they formed really distinctive steep uh, kind of spires that you know from our perspective look like a set of mule ears. So that's another great example, and you can see those from a distance if you're on the west side of the national park. You can see them for miles sticking up out in the, the middle of the desert. Yeah, that's a really good example. And so I guess if you take that Ross Maxwell Scenic Drive that gets you down there right next to the Mule Ears, you'll also see, I always get these confused. Like if an intrusion goes kind of horizontal along the rock, 
uh, like between beds, you call that a sill. Do I got that right? Yeah. If it's if it's a tabular intrusion, so right. <clears throat> so sills are classified along with kind of the opposite, which would be a, a dike. Sills right, are vertical. Yeah, those are vertical. Right. Well, not necessarily vertical. They cut through the layers. Oh, right, they're they're right. what we call discordant. So they cut through the layers rather than following the layers. A sill will kind of intrude in between layers and form a tabular body of intrusive rock um, that when it's eroded at the surface, we call a sill. So, yeah, I uh, just love the, the, the nomenclature of geology is so, so awesome. It was just a name for everything. You guys, <laughs> you guys thought of everything. Yeah, well, I always, I always tell my intro geology students, and Conley, you might remember this from historical geology. I, I read an article one time, I can't remember where it was, but uh, someone did a study where they looked at the new terminology that was introduced for a bunch of different intro college classes. And uh, intro to geology introduced more new terms than an intro to a foreign language class. <laughs> oh, wow. And I always tell my students at the very beginning of the semester that, and they all That's laugh, and, and it's, it's true. Um, you do, you kind of have to, I think I would love to see a study on this, because I, I actually, one of the things I like about geology is its verbosity. I like, I like, I kind of like language, and I like words, and I like the origin of words. You know, etymology yeah. and so to me that's one of the things i like about geology but it's also at the same time one of the things i hate about it because i can never keep a lot of it straight yeah and i'm probably like i, I was uh, very hesitant to say still even though i was pretty sure that's what it was but it's hard to keep it's, it, you know if practice makes perfect and if you don't use the words all the time yeah and and there there's a lot of terminology associated with intrusive igneous bodies probably more so mm -hmm. than than other oh, yeah other kind of components of geology. Um, yeah, because what's what the hell's the difference between like a a, a, a plug, a, a batholith, a, uh, a you know there, uh, there's all these yeah. names and it's all kind of comes down to arbitrary differences in size. And right? it, well, it kind of seems like they're all like throwing darts in the dark <laughs> and coming up with these terms here. Yeah, well, they, they and and they have a lot of different origins too. You know, there there's. Greek and Roman and German and and there's a lot yeah. of uh, Nordic type language mm -hmm. stuff out there. Um, so it's uh, I'm sure a lot of a lot of note cards have been burned trying to study <laughs> for for tests. Related well, that to reminds me of the, maybe you can set me straight. The, so that one of the cool um, intrusions we have, you don't even really see the intrusion, but you see the result of it. This thing called the Solitario Dome. Mm -hmm. Real desert rats in West Texas have probably heard of because it's way out there in Big Bend Ranch State Park in the remote out, uh, kind of outback. Um, and that was caused by an intrusion, but I forget what, what it's classified as. So it's, it has its own unique classification. Again, the, the Solitario Dome, um, if you haven't been out there, but if you've um, you know scrolled around or traversed around on Google Earth enough times out here in West Texas, you've probably seen it. Um, it's a really distinctive uh, topographic feature. It's basically a big, a big dome inside of a crater, um, and it forms almost a perfect circle. It looks like a meteorite impact, um, yeah. like an astrobleem, but it's not. Um, and the, it's funny that you ask what we classify that as. Uh, we kind of had to invent a term 
to a composite term to classify the solitario dome because it's so unique. Um, a lot of people who study the solitario refer to it as a laco caldera. Okay, so there's a new one to add to your to your right. note cards. So that's that's a combination of a lacolith and a caldera. Correct. Yeah. So and a lacolith is a big volcanic plug. <laughs> is, yeah, sort of. So again, uh, the term lacolith relates to the the shape of the intrusive body. Um, lacoliths will be kind of kind of mushroom shaped. They'll have a rounded top. Okay, and yeah. a flat bottom. So they kind of result from an isolated body of magma, a plume basically coming up through the through the crust and then solidifying. Um, and sometimes they get so close to the surface that they actually deform the overlying rock, forming a dome. Now when it comes to the solitario, you had that take place, but then you had a major eruption or a series of eruptions that took place through that. And uh, in some cases where you have a really violent volcanic eruption where a lot of the underlying magma chamber is emptied, the volcano collapses in on itself and it mm -hmm. forms a big depression. Uh, this is how, how Crater Lake in Oregon formed. So when it comes to the solitario, you had a uh, lacolith, this big kind of plume-shaped body of intrusive rock which subsequently was erupted through and collapsed down into a depression forming a caldera. Wow. So, so that, that's why Solitario is kind of intrusive and extrusive simultaneously? Yeah, and, it, and it's, it's seen several sequences of, of both take place. So that's why you get people from hundreds of miles away coming down here to study the Solitario. We're fortunate enough to where we could get out there in, in you know, three and a half hours um, and actually observe it. Uh, so yeah. there are people who would drive across the country to come see the Solitario because it's so geologically interesting. It is really cool. I got to see it for the first time um, last summer. Um, we, we actually trespassed back there. To, <laughs> to Don't check tell it anyone. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm telling everyone now, now that I'm far from, you know, where anyone can get me. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, the state park had that place chained off, and we walked up to the chain and just kind of checked to see if it was dummy locked. Yeah, and it just fell apart. And we we're like, "Oh, this is great." Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> so we just that's state property. So. <laughs> reattached the uh, chain, and so then we were back there, and and there's just no way to know we were back there because uh, you know the chain was up. So anyway, I just confessed to a, a, a big crime on live on air here, everybody. Um, so. Just don't tell anyone. Yeah, I'm sure Texas State Park Service is going to fly out to Australia and, and put you in well, cups. I can, I can see them sending a, a, a citation. To <laughs> well, if anybody is really triggered, then they can always go to usajobs.gov and apply. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. but if, if you want to check out the Solitario, we just have a minute or so before our first break, but... Um, you can you can actually camp out there. You you really need like a high clearance vehicle. You don't necessarily need a four wheel drive vehicle. Um, I've taken big passenger vans full of students out there, but um, it is a little rough to to drive out to the solitario. But there's a great campsite in there called Trace Papalotes, and mm -hmm. it's really you know if you take if you look at the the national park and the state park combined, probably the most remote campsite um, of those two parks. 
because it's just so far out there and you're yeah. so isolated when you're inside of that that uh depression of the solitario um, and there's bears in there and and beautiful wildlife and scenery and the geology is yeah. incredible definitely worth checking out yeah well, I think we've we've got to go to a quick break, but when we come back, we'll continue talking about intrusions and intrusive rocks uh, here on the Science Nights. Hello, everybody. Sean Graham here from the Science Nights, and we are back, and we are still talking about igneous intrusions, volcanic intrusions, uh, and, and we've been talking about really cool ones that you can see in West Texas, but honestly... The ones in West Texas aren't kind of nationally famous. I don't. I don't think any of them are on you know everybody's postcards uh, <laughs> that they're going to mail everywhere. Whereas some of the some of the intrusions are kind of, if not world famous, certainly nationally famous. I, I would I would posit or I would kind of uh, suggest that I think I know which one the most famous one is. And of course, I'm going to tell you what it is, and then. And then Schiller's going to tell you that it's not actually an intrusion, but I'm pretty sure it is. Um, and po- partly because it was the star of a big budget, major blockbuster science fiction movie in the early 80s. You guys know what I'm talking about? Devil's Tower. Devil's Tower. I would, I would say that in the U.S., that's probably our most famous intrusion. I think so. Yeah. I, I, would, yeah, I would argue that Enchanted Rock is maybe a little bit more famous. <laughs> I forgot about that one. I actually looked that one up. I had to look it up to prepare because I'd forgotten what it was. But in Texas, Enchanted Rock, yeah, that's a good one in Central Texas. Yeah, I was thinking the never-ending story, so. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, Devil's Tower, spectacular. Um, I guess tell us a little bit uh, about how that guy formed and how you get those perfect, you know, angular sort of uh, striations along the edge of those kind of features, sure. Thomas. So um, I don't know too much about Devil's Tower. I had the opportunity to visit Devil's Tower one time when I was in Wyoming, but we, we wussed out and decided to spend another day in, in Yellowstone and not drive up there. Um, what I do know about Devil's Tower is, it is in fact, an intrusion. And um, Specifically, the the landform is what we call a monadnack or uh, uh, Iselberg, mm. yeah. um, which are these these usually intrusive intrusive bodies of rock that are much more resistant than the surrounding rock and sediment. So, uh, when they erode, the surrounding material erodes much quicker, and they form really really distinctive features on the landscape, and it exemplifies that term. Um, so uh, as far as I know, Devil's Tower was a shallow intrusion. Um, mm-hmm. So it wasn't formed, you know, deep, deep within the earth over millions of years, basically. Um, and the clue that we have to that is actually what you were describing, Sean, the, the fracturing, the fracture pattern that we find in the, the body of rock. So Devil's Tower is probably the best example of what we call in geology uh, columnar jointing. Mm-hmm. Um, jointing or a joint is basically a fracture in the rock where there's very, very little or no displacement. So basically a crack, a normal crack in the rock. Um, now, intrusions, especially those that are emplaced at shallow depths, when they cool, they start to contract. The solid rock starts to contract, and it'll form these kind of uh, 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 polygonal columns, right? 
and each one of those surfaces is a fracture plane. And uh, the Giant's Causeway, if you're familiar with that in Europe, is a good example yeah. of columnar joining. Um, if you're from here in West Texas, if you're driving down to Studi Butte, uh, Willow Mountain, which would be on your left as you're driving south to Studi Butte, has mm -hmm. some spectacular columnar jointing. But it's basically a, a physical property of the rock as it starts to cool, it fractures in these really regular patterns. So Devil's Tower is full of those columnar jointing or columnar joints, and it gives it a really bizarre appearance. And um, in 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 uh, uh, what is it, Close Encounters of the Third Kind? Yeah, uh, it's replicated in a big pile of mashed potatoes. If I remember. <laughs> yeah, and uh, Richard Dreyfus runs his fingers down the mashed taters to make those uh, columnar jointing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, in in his big scale model that he makes in his house that he gets divorced over. <laughs> it's actually kind of it's kind of a sad movie if you think about it. It is until the very end when when they get to meet, meet all the the aliens. Yeah. Everybody else comes home, but Richard Dreyfus takes off into outer space and leaves his family behind. Yeah. And that one guy Oof. who gets to play the big keyboard, he kind of has a fun job. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. Great movie. Yeah. So Devil's Tower. Um, let's name some others. Uh, Shiprock in New Mexico. Yeah, Shiprock yeah. is a good example. That's, that's, that's a great one. Yeah, that's a, actually a volcanic neck. So yeah. it's uh, a really shallow, intrusive body. Um, and the reason it has such a unique shape to it is because it's basically the solid or the solidified magma within the throat of a volcano and the surrounding volcanic cone um, eroded away over time. So that's How what, cool. Yeah. So and, it's like the, in, the innards of an old volcano where part of it, part of it kind of solidified underground, the rest of it extruded. And then you're left with just the really hard stuff that solidified and cooled pretty slowly. Yeah. And everything else eroded around it. And it's spectacular, right? It's just sitting out there in the middle of nowhere. And I love how it's got these like snaking little kind of extensions. Yeah, those are distance. Those are ring dikes or radial dikes. Um, mm -hmm. So oftentimes when a, a volcano um, erodes down and the surrounding material is removed, you can see kind of the complex inner workings. It's not just like, you know, what you see in your, your dinosaur book when you're a kid where you have the, you know, the single passageway, the single conduit for magma. Uh, what you really have, you have all these, these dikes that are forming uh, around the edge, the margin, because you have a bunch of magma that's pushing its way up towards the surface. Um, and, and most of that stuff, you know, will just solidify beneath the, the surface of the earth and is sometimes exposed. We see the same thing in the Chizos Mountains out here in Big Bend. If you, uh, once again, if you drive Ross Maxwell, most of the, the impressive igneous stuff is on that side of the park. So if you drive Ross Maxwell Scenic Drive, you see all these really sheer tabular faces that are sticking up, um, kind of pointing towards the, the core of the Chizos Mountains. These are more examples of these radial dikes, and you can see them especially well if you look on, on satellite or aerial imagery of the central part of Big Bend. You see them just kind of branching and radiating off of, of the Chizos Mountains. So those are all intrusions. They're just, they're dikes. They're what we call discordant bodies, discordant tabular bodies, but they're related to the, vol the volcanoes. 
And there, you don't even have to, you know, in the West, you see a lot of these because we have this spectacular um, kind of erosional uh, situation in the desert where there's, and there's no vegetation covering a lot of the uh, stuff that's out here. So it's super obvious and pretty easy to learn how to, to see an intrusion, but they even occur in the Eastern U.S., which is mostly kind of covered in forest. Mm-hmm. There's some really cool ones in the Eastern U.S. that are kind of the, like little islands of desert within the sea of forest, because um, most of these are bare granite rock, smooth surfaced, and they don't um, have much soil on them. Uh, and so the vegetation, there's really interesting vegetation that has adapted for living on these isolated granite domes in the eastern U.S. that, are, that are, show similar adaptations to our desert plants in, in, in southwest Texas and the southwest. In fact, you know, one of the easiest places to see something like a cactus or a yucca in the eastern U.S. is on one of these granite outcrops. Wow. Um, yeah. And I didn't know can, about that. Yeah, there's even... Um, other interesting plants that really weird, low-growing succulents uh, that are bright red-leaved plants. A bunch of them are super rare and endangered because they're only found in these rock outcrops. And for folks who aren't um, very familiar with you know the eastern U.S., we're talking about places like Stone Mountain. Have either of you guys ever heard of Stone Mountain? I have. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's it's got some some historical significance, right? It, there was a yes. battle there, or, or there wasn't a battle there. Or? Where's that it's, located? It's right next to Atlanta, Georgia, and it's it's impressive. So if you guys, and as a quick aside, another one that um, you know one of these uh, isolated rock outcrops that's not an intrusion is Ayers Rock in Australia um, or Uluru. And that's actually a sound, uh, just a weird sandstone dome that for some reason looks exactly like an intrusion. But Stone Mountain looks and is shaped almost exactly like Ayers Rock, and it's just sticking up out of the forest, really tall, um, right next to Atlanta. It's like uh, you know, 15 minutes east of Atlanta. If you fly into Atlanta, look around, you'll see there's a couple of them if you keep your eye peeled. It's not hard to see Stone Mountain from miles around. It's, that it's big? really impressive. Yeah, it's really big. It's really impressive. And it would be a spectacular natural feature that uh, Georgia could be proud of if it weren't for a little bit of graffiti that's on its uh, north face. It's got basically the Confederate Mount Rushmore carved into it. Oh, yeah. Um, which is what it's most famous for. So, like, you know... Uh, Robert E. Lee and uh, Stonewall Jackson and some other Confederate. Uh, I guess the last one is Jefferson Davis uh, carved into it on horses, and it's a, it's a, an incredible carving, but it's it's a little untimely, um, and it probably needs to be removed to be honest, because it, it's a spectacular natural feature, um, and it's a little bit of an embarrassment with that stuff going on on it, but. Uh, another interesting one in the Atlanta area, which was the site of a battle um, during the Civil War, is Kennesaw Mountain, which um, probably neither of you guys have heard of. Very, have either of you guys heard of that one? No. I've heard of Stone yeah. Mountain, but not Kennesaw Mountain. No. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Kennesaw turns out it's, it's actually the most visited battlefield park in the country. Um, it's a national battlefield park. It gets more annual visits than even Gettysburg. So it's actually in the Atlanta area, it's super well-known. People go there um, every day to like, go running and go have picnics. And since it's so close to Atlanta, it's on the northwestern side of Atlanta. 
it gets a ton of visitors. It's you know like one of these big big battlefield parks that's right next to a major city, so it's it's very popular. But I, I totally understand neither of you guys have heard of it. But yeah, and, and um, you know the kind of lead up to the end of the Civil War, Sherman was on his way to sacking Atlanta, and one of the last kind of major obstacles in his way was this big mountain, it, which is an intrusion. It's an interesting one though. Um, that the Confederates basically got up on there, dug in, and they had a big battle. Thousands of Union troops died in a kind of a direct assault on the mountain. It's one of the kind of big last de- uh, defeats the Union Army was was dealt in the run up to the end of the Civil War. Um, and then they outflanked it and took Atlanta, and you know the next year it was all over. Yeah, but my great 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 grandpa was uh, in that battle. He was in the battle. Yeah. Yep. That's Got all the history. It's fun. So, fun uh, the, the, from a, it's a really cool place besides the battle history, though, because it's got um, a lot of interesting natural features. Um, the geology itself is really cool, and that this is an intrusion that later actually became metamorphosed. So, it's not a granite dome, which a lot of the intrusions in the southeast are. It's actually made of gneiss, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Yep. Yeah, that's yeah. yeah. Nice is a metamorphic rock, and and one of the sources of our many ge- geology puns. Yes, and I was afraid to make the pun, and so it's spelled G N E I S S. Yeah, nice. Um, and actually, yeah. So this is basically an example of like um, a big, a big gabbro dome that intruded a long time ago. Uh, and gabbro, I, if you'll if I'm not mistaken, is like a super deep intrusion that's super coarse-grained because it cooled so slowly and with, like, really heavy material from deep down in the earth. Yeah. Yeah, it's... All it's, that checks out. Yeah, it's it's different than, than kind of the general composition of the crust, which is mostly gra- uh, granitic. So Gabbro mm-hmm. is kind of on the other end of the compositional spectrum. It has very little silica and a lot more iron-bearing minerals. So it's... Right. It's a it's a black, coarse grained, intrusive igneous rock. Yeah. So that had to have, that had to have intruded a long time ago, probably to be completely eroded out. But before it got eroded out, a huge amount of metamorphism took place in the Georgia Piedmont, in the Piedmont region of the whole southeastern U.S., which has been attributed to the collision of Africa with North America during the Permian. Yeah, uh, which smooshed all those rocks together, created a ton of pressure and heat, which changed the, the the rocks that were there before the collision, and took this big deep gabbro dome that had been intruded and cooled, who knows when, and changed it into nice. So it's a big nice dome that's sticking up out of the Georgia Piedmont, has this historical significance, and because of all those things you mentioned about the uh, different kinds of heavy metals that are in that rock and then the soils that erode out from it. Mm-hmm. It's got all kinds of bizarre uh, plants that can kind of tolerate those sorts of soil conditions, these mafic conditions, plus rock outcrops that have rare plants that are adapted to granite domes. And on top of all that, like for some reason, birds um, just seem to be completely attracted to this big mountain that sticks up out of the Piedmont. Um, and during migration, you can't find a better place to go bird watching in the Atlanta area. So is it black? Is the, is the rock still black? 
It's not. It's it's you know. So this is where I'm really going to show my ignorance of geology. Um, it, 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 so it's been metamorphosed so intensely that it's you'll see these big wavy bands of like white uh, quartz and gray material. These big wavy bands, which I'm pretty sure are called migmatite. Mm-hmm. Is that? Yeah. yeah, so it's like that's that's a point where metamorphism is so intense that if it goes any more, it'll become molten again. Yeah, well, the 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 bands that you're seeing in there were actually molten, and that kind of right. brings up a good topic. I won't go into too much detail about it, but um, I mentioned that when when you study intrusive uh, processes like we're talking about, uh, chemistry and physics play into it quite a bit um, because a lot of these things are taking place where we can't observe them. And uh, something we learned kind of early on in, in our, our um, you know, geologic history in our recent geologic history, the history of study is different minerals will both melt and solidify or crystallize at different temperatures. So, um, one of the things I teach my geology students way early on is to get over this idea that when a rock is subjected to enough heat, it just uniformly melts, and when it cools off, it uniformly cools and crystallizes. There are certain minerals that, even under the, the highest temperatures deep within the crust, still will not melt. So if you have something like a gabbro, like you're talking about, and you bury it you know, thousands of feet beneath the surface where heat and pressure are enough to start melting things like quartz and uh, and muscovite and feldspars and things like that, you're basically sweating out molten material from solid rock and you're changing the chemical composition of what was originally mafic rock and you're changing the composition of the molten material that's being sweated out of it. So in, when this is happening in, in metamorphic conditions, you get a metamorphic rock called a migmatite that's basically a mixture of intrusive igneous rock and metamorphic rock. The stuff that's metamorphosed is ah. the solid material that's not melted. The stuff that's igneous are all the minerals that were sweated out of that solid rock. And yeah, that makes a lot of sense because there's definitely these kind of gray bands that must be some of this more... Uh, you know, felsic material. Yeah. Plus, there's these really cool um, inclusions within the melted and uh, metamorphosed materials mm-hmm. that's been left alone, which has this great name that I learned when researching this topic: scarns. Scarns. Yeah. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah. There's like a there's like these little scarns of leftover limestone from some of the material, um, you know, that was there before the big metamorphic event the big squeeze mm-hmm. um, yeah. so it's just a remarkable place with all this kind of history and natural history and um up until recently like if you went to this battlefield park uh none of that stuff is you know it's it's dedicated to battle and, and it should be but it's got all this natural history and there's really no not much uh focus on that and uh, until recently, uh, but now there's this great book about <laughs> the, uh, the natural history of Kennesaw Mountain called Kennesaw uh, Natural History of the Southern Mountain that you can get at Amazon or uh, possibly your local bookstore. Who, who wrote that book, Sean? Oh, so. I heard, I heard I the guy was kind of a jackass. <laughs> who wrote it. 
but it's, I did. I did. <laughs> it was me. It was me. I'm Doctor <laughs> Sean Green. Wait, wait, hold on. Available hold on, on a Amazon second. Let, let, hold, let's, hold, let's the phone. hold the up. Okay, can we go to a local bookstore and find this? Um, I'm going to try to get Front Street to carry it, but I, I feel I feel about as bad asking them to carry it as I do plugging this book on our show because I know people from West Texas uh, may not be terribly interested in this really interesting mountain that's found in the Atlantic. You're area. plugging it. That, that just kind of came up organically, Sean, as we were having. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> we did such a good job. Uh, yeah. So um, I am going to, you know, the, the, the publisher is going to approach front street and ask them if they want to carry a couple copies, but I don't think I have enough name recognition really where, if I were Front Street Books, I wouldn't carry it. I'd, I'd let Atlanta area bookstores carry it. Uh, but we'll see. Uh, uh, but certainly, um, you can get it directly from the publisher. University of Alabama Press is putting it out. If you don't want to support Jeff Bezos and his, uh, you know, trillion-dollar monopoly on global trade, uh, but you can easily get it through. But we really do. We really do want to support. Yeah, that. free shipping, man. Free shipping, <laughs> Amazon Prime <laughs> options. It's just, it, you know, it's just twenty five bucks. Twenty five bucks. It's like it's cool the way University of Alabama Press did it. Um, it's like a little souvenir. It's 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 got like two hundred pages, but it's kind of small and compact. You can stick it in your pocket. You can stick it in your fanny pack and take it on the trail with you. <laughs> so it's it's mostly uh, you know kind of designed for uh, being sold at the Park Bookstore there at Kennesaw Mountain National Battlefield Park. That's probably where it'll see its most, uh, you know, and that makes sense. It'll, it'll get sold there mostly, and that's kind of who it's for. It's for visitors to the to the Battlefield Park. Well, okay, you've intrigued us. Okay. Yeah. We're, we're typing up on Amazon. You can hear yeah, me right now. I'm, I'm typing it up. Now, uh, beautiful cover. Maybe after maybe after the break, we can talk about that whole process. Yeah, I'd love to tell you guys the story of how this uh, book came to life because uh, you could probably write a book about that. Uh, For example, um, I I originally intended for this book to be published during the 150th anniversary of the battle that summer, and Mm. that was uh, (laughs) that was 2014. It was 1864. Uh, that was just like two years ago, right? <laughs> it was quite a while ago. And so, uh, and it was done. It was done uh, in time for it to be published at that time. So that's how long it took. This is actually my first book. Uh, even though my snake book was published first, this is the first book I ever completed that took a considerably longer time period getting it published. And we can talk about that after the break. Yeah, we want to know more about the whole process, so we'll see you. All right, everybody, we are back talking about uh, intrusions, talking about a lot of things, uh, science today on the Science Nights in the Morning. And before the break, we were talking about Sean Graham's new book that is just coming out. I'm very interested in learning the process. I mean, this took a long time, right, Sean? It did. It didn't take that long to write, um, it, but it took a long time to, to get it finished, uh, to get it published. Well, t- and, and let's start with the research process yeah, and then so, go into the writing and then the publishing and okay, all that. Yeah. So I would say I conceived this idea 
and started kind of doing research on it back when I still lived in Atlanta, which would put this back to, um, you know, the early 2000s when I was a grad student at Georgia State University in Atlanta. Um, and I kind of came up with this idea. I thought, oh, wow, there was a couple of cool things about it I thought were neat. Uh, the, the park is awesome. It's well visited. So people would want to buy the book. And I actually don't have that much emotional attachment to Kennesaw Mountain. I've been there a couple times. It's beautiful. It's great. But I'm not, I'm not like a, you know, a diehard Kennesaw Mountain fan. I don't hike. There are people like that who hike there every single day and just love the place. And I thought, you know, that person would write a terrible book about Kennesaw Mountain. I can be dissociated from it. I can write dispassionately about this place because I, I'm not like the place's number one fan. There are places that I grew up at, uh, you know, uh, in the South that I just love and I've got these emotional attachments to that I should not write about. If you want to write, uh, you know, effectively about a place, I feel like you shouldn't be um, in love with the place. So I had all that going for me. So I just started reading. You know, I wrote about, I read about its geology. Uh, there's some other interesting things. The fact that it's this bird hotspot during migration is really interesting. And I thought, you know, there's three chapters in the book about the birds of Kennesaw Mountain. I figure you know, birders are a big market, so that's that's a good thing to go after. So at some point, I made the decision, you know what, I think I can do this, started writing it. And then um, after I got my PhD, I thought about actually approaching a publisher, and that was the first time I'd ever done that. I looked into like how you write a proposal uh, for an academic publisher, and I just basically did like a cold call. I, I emailed an editor, not at this current uh, press where it was published, and they seemed to respond to it positively. And we went back and forth uh, over years. Um, kind of working on how exactly this book was supposed to look. Um, part of the problem, I'll, I'll go ahead and admit this, was that I originally had a chapter beginning that was history. I wrote about the battle. I wrote about the battle as a, in, as a non-historian writing about the Civil War. And that turned out to be, I think, the biggest problem um, with both publishers, including University of Alabama Press, who eventually did um, agree to publish it. They wouldn't publish it with that chapter. And did part of did the, you talk about a, the tactical? Yeah, just like oh, I wanted the book to be a one-stop shop uh, for any visitor to Kennesaw Mountain, even people who were there for the historical stuff. So they could read my chapter about the historical part. And I went to the primary literature. I went all out uh, researching that chapter uh, to original you know, letters and um, archives uh, didn't, I, I purposely avoided reading like books about the battle, which are all terrible, by the way, uh, dry, awful, just renditions with, you know, as is not, uh, all academic yeah. literature. Well, a lot of like the, some of those battlefield histories are just the driest thing you could ever imagine. Just all these anonymous regiments that you don't know who was part of them, all these people that they never developed as characters. This is awful. So I tried to boil it down into kind of a, a, a good introduction on the battle and its significance. And by the time University of Alabama Press was interested in publishing it, the Civil War had become radioactive. And you couldn't, you couldn't possibly do anything with it from, from an academic press because of things that happened um, in the last four years in the U.S. 
and I, I, I kind of blame it on that. I blame it on that. that you know, if, if I tried to, if I'd gotten this done a little earlier, I probably could have pulled it off. But by the time it was ready to come out, um, nobody could, you know, the, the editor had a really good point. She said, look, everybody's got opinions about the Civil War. And nothing you're going to say is bringing anything kind of new to light. And so just leave it out. You're, you're, you're good at writing the nature stuff, and that's what this book should be. I, leave out I those about hours it. and hours and hours of research. and Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I thought it did. And, you know, it's cool. I got a little bit of vindication because um, they they let some, like, ecology-type people, biology people review the book. These In an academic press... The book gets reviewed just like a scientific paper does by two anonymous reviewers who then, you know, tear your book apart and tell you how, oh, it needs to have this more, it should be a more technical approach and, you know, this is written for lay people and it's, it's too informal, all this garbage. And, you know, you just roll with those punches and then they were worried enough about the Civil War history part that they had a historian review my introductory chapter and they actually kind of gave it a thumbs up. They said he did a pretty good job. So I was a little bit vindicated. And then they said, you know, there's no way, man. It's just people are too, uh, like, on fire about that thing right now. Uh, so we can't do it. And they convinced me. Um, and I thought, okay, you know, it's better to have this thing done and have it out. And they're right. It's not supposed to be a history book. It's supposed to be uh, about the natural history, and that's what it is now. Huh. Okay. Well, great. Yeah. Well, so what, what kind of hands-on or field experience did you have to do in order to write all the details of the nature part? You said you just went a couple of times, right? You just visited yeah. I've been I've been there a bunch of times. I mean, I, when I lived in Atlanta, I'd go there birding a lot. And so, I, you know, I, I know there's people that have been there way more frequently than me. So a lot of it, you know, um, is about just the kind of general ecology, uh, plant-animal interactions, things like that, that also applies to just eastern forests in general. So there's like chapters about forest ecology that apply to Kennesaw Mountain. And where, where I could, I would, you know, have specific examples about Kennesaw Mountain. But a lot of the stuff applies equally to any forest in the eastern U.S. So it has, even though it's focused on Kennesaw Mountain, the book should have wider appeal to anybody who's interested in nature in the, in the southeast or the eastern U.S. Um, uh, so, yeah, and there's, there, there is a nice bird guide to Kennesaw Mountain by... A buddy of mine, this guy, Giff Beaton, has an awesome name, Giff, um, who is this awesome birder in the Atlanta area, um, super well-respected birder, author of many books about natural history of like things like tiger beetles and uh, caterpillars and birds of Georgia. And he, um, you know, he helped me a lot. He's got this great book on birds that I used a lot for my bird stuff. And I kind of make him the star of the book in many ways. Um, so he was really helpful, really cool to work with, and, and helped out a lot with some of that stuff. Uh, but yeah, so kind of my, the way I do things when I write for like a general audience, what I do is I read a ton. I, I read like 50 scientific papers about the topic that I want to kind of distill into some sort of um, narrative that's interesting. And then I'll, I'll read a ton, and then I'll just kind of sleep on it for like a week. 
and then I'll just kind of uh, come up with some way to describe all that research for a general audience, um, you know, with, with less jargon. Yeah. Uh, so you described this earlier as kind of a little a little book. Well, 200 pages isn't really little, but one that someone who's visiting the park could could grab a copy, stick it in their pocket, and and just yeah. about anyone could read it and and understand That's what, what it's you're supposed talking to about. Be. That's what it's supposed to be. Very it's cool. So so what's the what's the title of the book again? Kennesaw: Natural History of a Southern Mountain. All right. So all you guys listening out there, pick you up a copy. Even if you're out here in West Texas, I'm sure it's it's even interesting to to folks out here. And uh, while you're doing that, we'll uh, we'll wait to talk to you again next Saturday, 10 a.m. on the Science Nights. Yep, we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this episode of Science Nights in the Morning. Be sure and follow us on Patreon for exclusive gear and uncut episodes. Check out the latest science articles on our Facebook page and subscribe to us on YouTube and your favorite podcast listening app. You can also listen every Saturday at 10 a.m. Central Standard Time at BigBenRadio.com. And if you got a question, we'll join the discussion. Hit the hotline at 432-217-1983 and record your message. We couldn't do this without you, and thank you so much for listening each and every week. That's Science Nights in the Morning with a K, and we'll see you next time.